When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, having finished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray together. God of grace and glory. We need your help. We need you to open your word to us. We can certainly read the words. And yet these are more than words. This very book tells us that. That these words, your scriptures, pierce us. They are a double-edged sword. Not so much a, a blunt hammer as a sharp scalpel that cuts deep and opens us up. Lord, would you do that this morning? Would you do that? And as you do that, would you draw us to yourself? And would you draw us to yourself through the person of Jesus? It's him we need to meet. It's him we need to see. And so, Holy Spirit, come and give us the sight beyond mere sight, that we would see Jesus and be saved. We pray it in his name. Amen. If, uh, if you were around in the mid to late 90s, you may remember the WWJD fad, right? The little, little armbands, okay? Um, for, my, for my younger friends who were not around in the 90s or who were way too young in the 90s to remember these. This was a little armband. And on that armband was very simple. It just said WWJD. Right? And it was, that stood for what would Jesus do? And I remember in high school, uh, I, think, I think the intention, it's, it's, it's a well-intentioned, uh, it was a well-intentioned thing, I think. I think for my friends in high school, I'm not going to insult anybody, hopefully, in here who wore that band as a high schooler. I was not a Christian in high school. In fact, I made fun of Christians in high school, and so I didn't have one of those bands. Uh, I know that comes as a shock to you that I made fun of Christians. But um, so anyway, my friends in high school, right, you would wear this band, and I guess the thought was that when it came to a crucial decision point, like what should I watch this movie or should I date this girl, um, you would kind of like look at your armband and go, okay, what would Jesus do? Um, again, I think a good intention uh, leaves out a couple of key points, like you're not Jesus. Um, and probably the fact that the more, important, the more important question is not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? That, that question really takes you to the heart of the gospel, it moves us away from 
the moralism that can pervade so much of Christianity, especially liberal Christianity that says, right, that, that your, um, your life consists in your doing. Um, the more important question is, what did Jesus do? And the answer is, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death and was raised again on the third day to give us life and righteousness. That's the gospel. And so that's really more of an aside this morning, I kind of want to change that slogan uh, to WWJP. What would Jesus pray? Hmm? Or maybe we should say WDJP. What did Jesus pray? When Jesus prayed, when especially now, right? John tells us that after Jesus had finished this long sermon or this long talk with his friends, um, he looks to heaven And he says, Father, the hour has come. And if you remember, the hour is the hour of Jesus' death, the time for him to go to the cross, the time for him to be killed. Uh, But it also has in view his resurrection and his future glory. That hour, that time, when Jesus is at the most crucial point of his life, what does he pray? How does he pray? And what does that teach us? And we're going to kind of cover it all under this heading, at least these first five verses. Um, what Jesus prays for is that God's glory would be revealed. And what we see in just these short five verses is that God's glory and your eternal life intersect at the cross. Even if you want to, even if you want to imagine those two cross beams that would have made up the Roman cross, right? The vertical beam of God's glory and the horizontal beam of your Life intersect at Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And we're going, to look at, uh, we're going to look at it in three ways. First, we're going to see how the, the Father's glory is seen in the Son. And how that, secondly, when, when we see God's glory, that's how we know eternal life. And then finally, how the Son's glory is seen in the cross. And we'll tie all of that together. Um, Jesus lifts his eyes up to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What is, what is Jesus asking for? What does it mean to glorify a thing? What does it mean to give something glory? It's like when you walk into a jewelry store, and I almost feel kind of funny saying this because I already unpacked this illustration for my Sunday school class earlier, so I feel like I'm saying this twice, but some of you weren't there. So, When you walk into a jewelry store, you'll notice that they don't have lights like this, right? It's not a, it's not a dimly lit room. If you want to walk into a jewelry store and look at a diamond, uh, they, are re- they are ready to sell you that diamond, right? Because what they do is they have put these lights up on the ceiling, these little uh, broad-spectrum spotlights that as soon as that diamond comes into it, that it just starts to sparkle, right? Um, now, the, the light does not make the diamond glorious. The light does not make the diamond beautiful. It just brings it out. And so to glorify something is to reveal, shall we say, to reveal its beauty, to reveal its greatness, to reveal what is already there. And so the first thing that Jesus asked for, the first thing that Jesus 
prays for is that God's glory would be revealed. That God's glory would be seen. That the, that the diamond of God's glory would be brought out into the light. That His fame and beauty would be put on display. And it's interesting, he says, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And so the, the Father is actually glorified in the Son. And that may seem arrogant of Jesus, right? Is Jesus saying, God, make me look good so that I can make you look good. Is that what, is that what Jesus is asking? No, you need to remember that as, as we look in John's Gospel, what what keeps being said of Jesus is that he is the sent one, right? He is, he is the one sent from heaven to represent and to reveal the Father. That's Jesus' mission. So he, is, he has come to reveal God to a hostile world that does not know God. He has come, as John says, to bring light into darkness. That's what Jesus has come to do. And so, really what Jesus is praying is, Father, help me to finish the job. Glorify me so that you may be glorified. We're, we're right here at the end. And in fact, it's, it's really significant because we're, we're right here at the darkest moment. The sun has set. The betrayer has left. The, the enemy is coming. And so, right now is darkest night. Father, help me finish the job. Glorify me. Reveal your glory in me so that I may reveal your glory to the world. Help me to continue to offer grace to people under judgment. Help me to come as the one who plucks people out of judgment. Help me, may they, may they see my greatness so that they will see your greatness. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1, verse 15. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know what the invisible God that you cannot see looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how He talks? Look at Jesus. You want to see how He acts? Look at Jesus. And then he says this in verse 19 and 20 of Colossians 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus comes to reveal God, and he reveals God as a reconciler. He comes to make peace. He comes into a hostile world and says, this is what God looks like, and I'm here to make peace. This is the offer on the table right now. Make peace with God through me. And so the first person Jesus prays for is himself. And what he prays for himself is that God's fame and glory would be clearly revealed in him. What is the first thing you pray for first? What is the first thing you ask for? I realize I'm I'm kind of pushing a, a boundary there 
Because I just said, remember, you're not Jesus, right? But I think it's interesting that the first thing Jesus tells his disciples to pray for in Matthew 6, after he says you can call him father, you can address him as a son or a daughter, the first petition is, hallowed be your name. The second is, may your kingdom come. And the third is, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first three prayers that Jesus tells us to pray all deal with God's glory and His purpose. And so we see nothing different in the life of Jesus. So that's really where Jesus is. The first thing on Jesus' mind, and you know there's a lot on His mind. You know He knows, the disciples don't know, but He knows and we know because we've, you've probably read the rest of the story. You know what Jesus is about to endure. You know what he's about to face. And the first thing on his mind, the primary thing on his mind, is that God's fame and glory and holiness and beauty would be revealed in his life. And what's, a, and what's amazing about that is he's not, he's not saying, God, help me forget what I'm about to go through. Just block that from my mind so that I can focus on your glory. No, the remarkable thing is he says, God, your glory is right in the midst of that. I have to go through the suffering in order to reveal the glory. In fact, the glory is revealed in the suffering. Can we pray like Jesus prays? Secondly, to see God's glory is to know eternal life. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, glorify your son that he may glorify you since or just as you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The reason Jesus is sent, the reason Jesus is to be glorified, the reason he must be glorified is so that he can give away life. He is he is given by the Father to give eternal life. The Father gives the Son authority, authority over all flesh, all humanity. He is the King of kings, the highest and best. That's glorious. And I think that's so important for Jesus to pray and for Jesus to say to his disciples and to us because at this moment and in the moments to follow, Jesus does not look glorious. He looks impotent. He looks helpless. He's a, poor, he's a poor carpenter's son from Nazareth. And they said his whole life, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's a, he's a backwater, blue-collar boy. And in 24 hours, he won't look powerful at all. He won't look like, in fact, he won't look like he has any authority. In fact, it will look like it will look like his father ignored his prayer completely. I mean, Jesus asked here to be clothed in splendor. And in less than 24 hours, he will be naked and bruised and bleeding on a cross. It looks like the opposite of authority. But Jesus is reminding them and reminding us that he has all authority. Not just some, not just a little bit. He has all authority over all humanity. And what he does with it is he gives eternal life to the, to the redeemed. Dare we say, to the elect. 
I mean, it's interesting that, that John and Jesus are not embarrassed by election. They're not embarrassed to say that while all, that Jesus has, humanity, has authority over all humanity, that not all humanity will be saved. That Jesus will give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. To those whom the Father has given him. And this isn't the first time it comes up in John. It's a recurring theme. John 3, John 10. Jesus gives life to God's people. And what is that life? When you hear the phrase eternal life, that's a, that's a churchy phrase. Uh, if you've grown up uh, around the church, if you've grown up in the church, you hear eternal life almost as much as you hear the name Jesus. And I wonder, have you ever stopped and thought about what exactly is that? Or if you're new to Christianity, if you come, if you come to us or if you come at the, at the church from outside and maybe you've heard Christians say that before and it's like, hey, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Could you maybe unpack that and define that for me? And I would argue that this is a phrase we probably just don't think much about. I mean, does it just mean that my life is going to go on forever just as it is? So if my life's a disaster, I will keep living the disaster. Or if it's relatively good that, you know, I'm just it's going to coast just the way that it has been, right? Just forever and ever and ever. Is that what eternal life is? And Jesus defines it for us. What is the substance of eternal life? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Jesus says, and this is eternal life. This is what it is. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, eternal life is knowing God through the Messiah, through the Christ, through Jesus. And to know, to know is more than, than intellectual, right? It's not, it's, it's not less than intellectual knowledge, but to, to know God is not simply an intellectual pursuit. Knowing God is not like knowing math. Or figuring out geometry. Um, or ancient British literature, right? Knowing, knowing God is not studying a subject and taking a test and saying, got it. Next. Right? That is not what knowing God is. Knowing God is knowing a person. And when you seek to know a person, your mind is engaged, right? The intellect is there. But, right, you, you study them. You make observations. You ask questions. You talk. All in an effort to get closer, to get to know them better, to discover who they really are, what they love, what they hate. When the Bible talks about knowing someone, it's personal. It's intimate. Genesis, in the book of Genesis, says Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore a son. And so clearly he knew more than her name and her favorite color. Right? He certainly probably knew those things. But his knowledge of Eve was far deeper, far more personal, far more intimate. That is what Jesus says eternal life is. Not just to study God, but to know him. To know him in an intimate and personal way way through the knowledge of Jesus. 
And so to have eternal life is to continually grow in that knowledge, which means that eternal life begins the moment you believe. Your eternity is not waiting on you to die. It's not waiting for this body to be put in the ground. Your eternity begins the moment that you believe on the Lord Jesus. That's when eternal life begins. If you're a believer, you're already living it because you're already growing to know God. And so that's where God's glory and eternal life come together. Jesus prays that he will be glorified so that we can know God. The Son reveals the Father's glory so that you and me can know God's glory. And when we know God's glory, we know God. And when we know God, we are experiencing eternal life. It's pretty remarkable. The question is, how does that happen? How does, how does Jesus reveal the Father's glory? How does Jesus bring us to know God? And that's where our third point comes in. That the Son's glory is seen in the shame of the cross. The Son's glory is seen in the shame of the cross. And that sounds, sounds inconsistent, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like it... That doesn't really make sense. I mean, if an army loses a battle, the glory really goes to the one who won the battle. Right? If, if Alabama loses to western Kentucky... An Alabama fan doesn't say that's a glorious loss. Right? In fact, glory, glory and failure, glory and loss, glory and death really don't go together. If you've ever been, and I know many of you have, if you've ever been at the bedside of someone who is dying, there is nothing, there is nothing glorious about it. Right, as the, as the body wastes away, maybe the mind goes, the breathing is raspy, right? It doesn't look glorious. It, it looks like something you, you want to you get away from, you want to run from, you want to hide from. But Jesus' glory is in His cross. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, again, talking to his Father, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So, Jesus' glory is in his finished work. Where he says, having accomplished, that's the same word that Jesus will use as he, as he takes his last breath. On the cross when he says, it is finished. Jesus says, I have finished the job. I have run the race. And in this way, Jesus succeeds where you and I miserably fail. You see, we were put on earth to bring glory to God. We were created... At least this is what the Bible tells us. We were created. We were made. We were formed and given the breath of life. We were made in the image of God so that we would reflect His glory. So that we would listen to Him. So that we would obey Him. 
so that we, he would do everything, we would do everything he says, and when we do that, we would bring glory to him. But I don't. And nobody does. Until Jesus shows up, and at every turn, he says, I've come for my Father's glory. I've come to honor him. I've come to obey him. Jesus, at every point, succeeds where I fail. See, I want to make it about me. I have a glory complex. I want you to see me. I want you to, 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 to see my beauty, to glorify my beauty, my greatness. Bring it out. But not Jesus. Even though, even though he was worth every bit of praise, he turned it repeatedly to the Father. Jesus seeks at every turn to make much of God. And he still has one last job to do. And he speaks of it as if he's already finished it. Right? It's included in this work. He says, I have glorified you on earth having finished the work you sent me to do. There's really one more task. And that task is to go to the cross. He's got to finish that. But the way Jesus prays, it's already done. And in that way, not only is he my better, not only does he succeed where I fail, but he also pays for my failure. Not only does Jesus live the life you cannot live, but then he pays the debt that you cannot pay. He pays for my sins. And so where is Jesus' glory? It is in his death. What makes much of Jesus... His death. His cross-bearing death. And then in verse 5, Where is Jesus' glory? And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' glory, the fullness of His glory is at the Father's right hand. Jesus not only will pay, not only has He lived a righteous death and, and excuse me, lived a righteous life, and died a sinner's death, but he will now take his rightful place at the throne. And from there, he will bestow all the benefits of his salvation. And so you need hear the gospel. Jesus does what you cannot do. He pays what you cannot pay, and then he gives you all of the benefits. He gives you the life that he deserves. And he takes on himself the death that I deserve. And what happens as a result of that is glory. Is Jesus' glory. Because when Jesus is fully restored to the throne, when Jesus takes what is rightfully his, when he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father in heaven we realize that he only looked like a loser. He only looked like a blue-collar, ignorant boy from Nazareth. He only looked like an enemy of the state executed for his crimes. What he happens to be in truth is the king of kings who has come to rule the world with truth and grace. Jesus finishes 
my job. Jesus pays my debt. And then I receive all his benefits. That is how glory is truly revealed. Not in some triumphant display of overt power. Not with a sword. Not with a battle axe. Not with an army. But a bloody wooden beam. And an empty cave. With linen. God's greatness is most clearly seen in the humility of the cross. Because it is trusting in the humility of the cross that makes you able to bring glory to God. Let's pray. O Lord, that our hearts would be set like Jesus' heart is set on Your glory. And it looks like an upside-down glory because it involves the Son of God being stripped and spit on and cursed and mocked and beaten. It's an upside-down glory because it means the death of one who didn't have to die. But then we see at the end of all things that all of the upside-downness is made right-side up. When the Lamb who was slain walks into the throne room of heaven and opens the seals of the scroll and all of creation breaks forth in loud praise. Set our minds like Jesus' mind. On your glory, not our own. And, and not a glory that ignores the cross, not a glory that ignores suffering, but a glory that happens through suffering, is revealed in suffering. A glory that is born out of shame and frees us from our shame. And from our death. That we might know God forever and ever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?